voice counts. Whose visualization informs the design of cities? And how do we collaborate in nurturing resilient and equitable futures? Hello, everyone. My name is Anantarupa. I am a designer, climate researcher, and dancer. I was recently a fellow for the 2021 Resilient Urban Latin America International Research Experience for Students program in Puerto Rico. And I research intersections of architecture, climate action, and ethnic philosophies. I am honored to facilitate today's Future Cities podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Before getting into the topic of the podcast, I would love to have everyone sat at the table today here in the beautiful New York City to briefly introduce yourselves. We can start with Duban Lopez. Hi, Anand and Elisa and Matthew. I'm pleased to be here with you broadcasting for the whole audience the Future Cities podcast. My name is Duban Lopez doctoral student and sustainability at the Polytechnical University of Catalonia in Spain, and president of RegNet, the Recycling Cities International Network, leading for Natura, the thematic working group on urban informality and innovation for resilient futures. I want to also add in my introduction the work with Arraigo, which is the platform of people affected by relocation and risk in Bogota, Colombia, and extend my greetings to these local communities that are fighting to accommodate their voice and struggle against vertical impositions that will induce strong changes in their lives. So if you let me, let's bring the, these claims into this table about, about democratizing visualization for climate justice. Hi everybody, this is Matthew Fagan. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Knowledge Integration at the University of Waterloo. And I do research on how we build capacity to work across different ways of knowing indigenous knowledge systems or scientific uh, systems um, as ways of knowing activist and critical theory as ways of knowing and to facilitate coordinated broad based visions and, and of change for what future cities need to look like in terms of justice and sustainability. And I'm also really excited for the conversation we're going to have today. And I would like to especially welcome our expert here, Melissa Ingaruka, if you could say a few words. Thank you, and I'm really uh, excited to be here today sharing this space with you. Um, I'm Melissa, as you said, I'm originally from Peru, but based for, for some years now in Berlin. I was uh, for a long time a climate activist, also as youth as a young person, and uh, more recently I'm uh, focusing research in urban sustainability, uh, specifically looking at the impact of, of, the, of many in, uh, exponential technologies. And specifically for this podcast, I would like to bring the reflection on how we can use these immersive and sensory technologies, but not uh, in the framework of top-down design or planning, but uh, thinking about how we can use them for more inclusive uh, processes and also thinking of how to bring non-human uh, perspectives into, into the practice of design. Yeah, so super excited to discuss these topics. 
Thank you all again for being here today. I'm super excited to be here. We see this podcast as a means to begin a conversation around democratizing visualization, specifically in relation to nature-based solutions and social justice, to drive urban form into a more inclusive, equitable, and uh, community-oriented future. Democratizing visualization would allow better accommodation for innovations, like Melissa just said, and also within communities and practitioners and decision makers to help the projected vision of the urban form and also the way it serves or not the collective interest of different stakeholders. Duvan, it would be great if you could contextualize the need for this conversation, especially and specifically about urban informality. Well, uh, of course, uh, Anand, from the thematic working group on urban informality, and innovation for resilient futures, we come to this topic of visualization capabilities, especially around the discussion of the future. Of course, there are probably very interesting discussions about the use of visualization for the past and for the memories. But coming into the how we can build together the future in our work strategy, which is the so-called local labs or local laboratories of informality and resilience, uh, we enter as researchers in urban spaces with a strong social and environmental conflicts in the city, so consequentially sites with a strong divergences and perspectives of the future. For example, the government has labeled some urban areas like high risk, but the community has been historic historically building their social dynamics, economic activities, and even adaptive practices using, for example, nature-based solutions. But if there are divergences, what kind of futures, visions, or projections get privileged, which are excluded? What we have seen is that certain dominant narratives, narratives are playing an hegemonic role and, a pre, and are very predominant, being introduced in the imaginaries of practitioners, scholars, funding agencies, and decision makers. Dominant visions even penetrate the social imaginaries of the populations not necessarily favored by such projections. For example, back in the example of popular settlements in low-level risk areas, uh, the mountainous areas of the city where there are popular informal settlements are visualized like risky. From very well-laborated technical narratives, the water bodies in these areas are associated with corridors of danger because of every type of instability, but in contrast, big landowners and urban developers are able in the same city to project the mountains and the water bodies as an environmental service uh, with ecological value. What I mean, an economic value, of course. What I mean is that dominant narratives are able to scale up and develop their performative capacity so materialize, materialize their imaginaries in the urban form and get benefit for that. But then a question is who is served by such imaginaries and who is not? This kind of political questions are increasingly common in the literature. And the point is that the possibilities to communicate these future visions and influence the social imaginaries and foster transformation is very much related to visualization. So by decentralizing visualization, we get to have an option to pluralize 
the future. How yeah. things are labeled, um, it's very much so whose voice and whose visuals are being highlighted. And that example that you gave with the informal settlement that the mountainous, you know, label as risky, I think that um, visualization, uh, of course, is the center of that kind of framing. So our project is about how we as students and early career researchers, activists at different stages, learn to visualize future cities to advance justice and sustainability. You know, the collision course between cities and climate change is often depicted primarily as an infrastructural problem for current decision makers to solve. How can we take decisions today to protect our roads, bridges, buildings, etc., to withstand the effects of climate change? Rarely is there any questioning of who is that we taking the decisions? How is that we any different from the we that took the decisions that brought us to the present collision point? And who ought to be the we of the future? As early career researchers, activists, and community members, we are inheritors of certain dominant systems driving planetary urbanization today. These include oppressive systems such as capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, racism, white supremacy, heteronormativity, and patriarchy. And we need to ask ourselves, how might we be reproducing, perpetuating these systems, even if inadvertently, through particular uses of data and visualization? And on the contrary, how can we use visuals to better expose historical injustices in the process of bringing into being new urban forms based on justice and sustainability? Because if we look at the history of urban planning, data, visual, data and visualizations can play different kinds of roles. Um, James Scott in Seeing Like a State argued uh, that maps are visuals that have been used to present a seemingly neutral bird's eye view of urban space, the grid of city streets. Yet the same maps were part of a project of colonialism, of dispossessing indigenous people of their land, replacing indigenous place names with those of the colonizer and organizing which settlers could gain access to what kinds and amounts of land. So maps were part of this project of imperialism, colonialism, and top-down state control. How, or has this project changed today? Well, perhaps it has in some respects, yet it remains the case that the experts employed to generate, organize, interpret, and deploy visuals in the name of future cities responding to climate change still tend to come largely from the same community in terms of class, gender, race. And so we need to start asking questions about, you know, who is this we and how can we bring women, indigenous people, members of LGBTQ plus communities, racialized minorities, and others uh, who are excluded from decision-making into the process of uh, these pluralistic futures. I got a taste of that kind of um, power as a researcher when I was doing my fellowship in Puerto Rico. As a Rula Iris fellow, uh, I investigated community narratives on flooding in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, the team conducted semi-structured interviews with 
of Puerto Nuevo residents to envision green futures, specifically through participatory mapping of flooding and infrastructure failures. The output of the project was a visual essay presented to the U.S. Corps of Engineers for future flood mitigation planning and community involvement. This experience was extremely informative because it emphasized collaborative and organized processes to execute meaningful projects, especially for and with marginalized communities. And I think that really touches on, you know, how we as researchers really have a lot of power in our hands and need to make sure we use it to highlight and empower communities, just like Matt was referencing. I was able to get two of my colleagues from the program, Teresa O'Neill, an urban planner in LA, and Daniela Garcia Moreno, a sustainability planner in Lowell, Massachusetts, to sit down and chat about our experience with the fellowship and specifically community-oriented research. There were some really interesting points made about visualization, so I wanted to play this clip here for us all to respond to. But before we continue, I do want to bring up what has happened in Puerto Rico recently with Hurricane Fiona and the disaster response as it is right now. The situation is deeply disheartening, and I suggest everyone listening tuned in to look into local organizations like Taer Salud, Brigada Solidaria del Oeste, and Ayuda Legal Puerto Rico as a starting point to help build back these impacted communities from the hurricane. Accessibility was like an inherent part of the process, and I think it becomes central to the way you're conducting science to make it for social justice for the communities. I think what was really impactful about the work that we did was that the community was involved in every step of the way. They were involved in, of course, the data visualization at the beginning with the participatory mapping, the interviews were very involved, and you know, that was all very neatly, I think, wrapped up in the end with the fact sheet and those other sorts of deliverables that we had that were community-centered. I think spatial representation of data is really important. And it, it's, it, I found it really interesting because we've all become very used to it because we use Google Maps all the time. But realizing that some of these community members didn't have that same natural plan view in their mind of their own neighborhood, um, it kind of surprised me and it just brings it back to Danny's point that making sure that what we're doing is accessible and it's understandable, whatever people's literacy and te technology literacy is or map literacy. Um, it's a tool for analysis, like, oh, okay, we can see that these areas flooded more or it's deeper here, but also for storytelling afterwards. And I think this might already be happening since I was really in school, is that we need to be teaching ourselves and our next generation of people how to visualize data in effective ways and encouraging creativity there because I think there's data people who think one way and then there's artsy people who think one way but um, like bringing those two things together to keep pushing the boundary of how we visualize data sometimes I'm like oh I, I want to do something cool with this but I don't feel like I have the tools yet so knowledge sharing about the ways to visualize data and, and creativity in that arena. I think all of us have been describing examples of how visualization has not been used, but can be used as a tool for social justice, especially for marginalized communities. I would love to open up the floor to discuss this further. 
Uh, thank you. Yes, I, I wanted to react to a lot of the things that Do and Matthew were bringing and, and I think I'll just start with one that just on the same line with, with what you started. So asking basically whose worldviews are shaping these future uh, scenarios of cities. And, and I think I was triggered by the comments that Matthew brought uh, because I feel uh, that that's a lot of what's influencing the imaginaries of future cities are these ideas of modernist architecture. I mean, if you are a, a, an architect or a designer, you're probably already uh, well familiarized with, with these notions. Um, and I think if you go anywhere now, you basically see the same template of city. No, so those really like boxy buildings made of concrete and glass and steel and, and car-oriented cities. And all of this is really heavily uh, rooted in our imagination of cities, but it's of course serving uh, the benefit of specific uh, corporate actors. And it, that was the case when it started, and that is the case today. And it would be the case even going further uh, when we think about who has the power now on the technologies that are being brought as part of these smart cities. Um, proposals and the ICT sector is, is now the big lobbyist for, for, this, uh, for the future of our city. So it, it's really interesting because we're talking about these mechanistic worldviews, this really modernist and also coupled with capitalism as part of that ideology. And if we ask uh, then what worldviews are guiding the, the future of our cities, that's basically what is happening. So we have to think of how to make the space, how to open up the space and really reclaim that space by the, the cosmovisions, the worldviews of different marginalized groups uh, and specifically in context of the global south, a lot of the cultures that were uh, obscure, I don't know if that's the word, uh, by colonization. And so this is something that maybe now it's a bit too abstract, but it's really, I think, a cultural uh, perspective that, that we have to, to push uh, forward. So that's my first reaction and I think um, Yes, it's not just the voices of people, but it's also what are the worldviews that they're, they're bringing into the process and, and how to open up that. Well, I, in general, feel like a resonance with your comments, uh, Melissa, and I think that I are, they are bringing to the point that we really need to remark in this conversation on how the imaginaries uh, that I communicated through visualization are able to have a performative capacity, which is this power, this potential to transform the reality and materialize the ideology or the some certain privileges and project that into the physical space of the urban form. Um, the, the role that I feel like a lot of these immersive technologies are playing out when they're embedded in this uh, in these dominant narratives is that they are somehow normalizing these visions of cities. So usually you would see that real estate or big companies, they they have access to, to this VR and, 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 and metaverse tools. And then they're depicting these super beautiful renders of how cities would look like. And what you often see when you look at those renders is that they're missing people on them. They're missing diverse people using the space. And sometimes they're even missing uh, the environmental uh, factors that will play out in the, those futures. So of course, we have you already have brought some of this when you talk about the flooding and many of these uh, projected climate change impacts. So we should be like really looking at what kind of messages they're, they're bringing like in, in, in these things. And also thinking that uh, the power, the, the balance of the power, it's already 
it's already so unbalanced and and these technologies if used on those contexts can even make that imbalance uh, greater uh, so so that's also just wanted to add to that like um so of course not all is negative and i think we, we can also bring like now the examples of where is uh, where we see positive uses because i know <laughs> we're missing on some of that and if i can jump off uh from from where you just left there and building a little bit on on what your your talk with Danny and Teresa um, was seeing uh, Anand. What I heard is that there are multiple literacies of urban space, right? And um, specific communities and people have knowledges of specific places, and not always do they have access to, um, as Duvan has said, you know, make those knowledges public or um, influential in decision-making processes. So the better we can sort of learn to listen to some of these different literacies, and it could be, it could be experiential knowledge about um, actual flooding practices in a specific place that aren't captured in high-tech um, uh, GIS approaches, um, but, but that are relevant to specific uh, lived experiences and, and specific neighborhoods. Um, there's a lot of different kinds of examples of the, the, the knowledge that um, um, communities bring to a planning process that is otherwise hidden and not part of the process. So yeah, Melissa, I think that um, I, I talked a bit about how uh, maps and, and visuals hide and, and, and are part of projects um, that, that uh, displace people and hide certain kinds of information. But for example, the work of Robert Bullard in, in exposing environmental injustices in the United States by mapping and showing the correlation between communities of color and um, waste disposal sites. I mean, this is a way that we can use data and visuals to actually bring a, a new lens to what future justice needs to look like. I would really add about this topic that, in, in fact, uh, we need to interrogate the role that we as researchers should play in the process of community participation and how we really are playing a role just to help to insert, to introduce the visions, the alien vision into the communities of, of we re really are trying to bring the visions, alternative visions into the table in decision-making. But of course, not only the role in the scholarship or in the academy, but of course in the institutions, how the institutions are making the community part of the process and how we don't really count with uh, important mechanisms for to balance this uh, process of planning and design and make this democratization that we are claiming and that in the local spaces uh, people is claiming to do. And the other thing is what kind of technologies and what kind of tools we, we can rely in order to enhance the sensibility of our planning and design process. Yes, so I also wanted to pick up on, on trying to showcase some uh, good examples, at least the ones that I, I consider good examples. 
um, in bringing uh, more inclusion into urban planning. And there is this one case that, that I studied, um, this was part of my master research at the Stockholm Resilience Center. And this one case, uh, it's a project led by students of uh, the University College London, and they situated their, their project in this area where um, there's going, there was going to be some redevelopment because of the construction of the high-speed rail line. Uh, so that would uh, that basically imply that the whole area or most part of this of this neighborhood was going to be demolished and uh, every, uh, people displaced and so on. So they wanted to to use uh, immersive technologies to kind of bring together the narratives and, and the stories of people that lived there and, and in a way that it could show how much the space meant to them. But what I wanted to say with, with this case is that um, they uh, also thought on how to make the process of creating those uh, scenarios, those spiritual scenarios, more accessible. So they, uh, they uh, used a lot of um, available software online to do the 3D scanning of the place and also they work with uh, low-cost cardboards. Uh, so basically try, try to, to make accessible the, the use of these tools. Uh, so that people, of course, they were guided a lot in, in the first iteration of the project, but the idea was that in the future it would be intuitive for anyone to use those tools and, and create their own stories about the place. So in the end, the project ended up being this virtual render of these areas, but with a spatial storytelling embedded as part of this. So you could go in, in, in this experience and, and basically listen to, to each person uh, of, of the neighborhood telling you why this place was important and it was kind of a beautiful memory of the place mm. um, and it also it, it was in a way a, to, a tool also to, to deal with the loss of a space and it made me think a lot back then of how we're focused too much on quantitative data and we should also be looking at the, the role of qualitative data which basically is what is the experience that we have with places and what is uh, the, what are those stories that we want to to listen to um, and also when we're dealing with a lot of loss and we will continue to, to deal with a, a lot of loss um, if, if we think about for example a lot of the impacts of climate change with floodings and areas maybe of the cities that become inhabitable because of uh, increasing heat and so on so I think uh, this was just a good example of how to, to use these immersive technologies in making in creating this social memory of the place a lot of what uh you were just saying melissa is very interesting especially in thinking about indigeneity low-tech architecture and design and the idea of regeneration you know kind of seeing the world as more of a community and also seeing research quantitative or qualitative as a storytelling tool I think that it would be amazing to kind of pivot and hear a little bit more about your research that you have been working in, not even thinking about, you know, human connection and community building, but non-human species and that integration. So, you know, please let us bask in the glory of your research. <laughs> Thank you for those kind words. Um, so basically, this is a research that I started when I was uh, doing the master at the Stockholm Resilience Center. And then later, it was also financed, like to, to continue this research, I got the funding from Natura. And so I was a research fellow, um, uh, and thank you to Natura. And I was doing also this fellowship at the um, Urban Systems Lab here in New York. 
And so this research that I was conducting was basically looking at what is the role that these immersive cognitive and, and sensory technologies could play out, uh, not only in um, making urban planning or design more participatory uh, from a human perspective, but also accounting for the voices of nature, for the subjectivities of nature, and and, and also trying to, to use these technologies to enable more non-anthropocentric perspectives. And then there's uh, already the comments that I did of whose worldviews. So I was often wondering, okay, how is it when these technologies are used in a more multi-species justice uh, framework and, 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 and inspiring that kind of thinking? So I found many examples that, uh, that I think are showing that there's hope, <laughs> that, that uh, we, we are starting to shift our thinking and with that also the way in which we can use these tools. Um, one example that it was actually not related to urban planning, it was more in the art design space, but I think it has potential to be, to be brought into the urban planning arena. It was this uh, studio, this studio in London again, that they were, they did this uh, work called In the Eyes of the Animal. It was a virtual reality experience. And they were in this, in this work, they were uh, simulating um, the sensorial worlds of other species. So it was basically the story of how a mosquito, a frog and an owl experience the forest. And it, by being on this experience, you could basically see what's happening there. Um, so just for example, the, the mosquito, uh, apparently the mosquito is able to sense the CO2 concentrations uh, around, uh, around uh, in the space around. And you would see the forest from being this, you know, really uh, um, the, 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 the shape that we know, trees here and a space there. And then when you go in there and into this experience, you basically see everything flowing. And these are the, the, the flows of CO2. So, and the same with the other two species. But um, what it made me think a lot, uh, now just taking it to the reflection that, we, that we're having, is that um, in order for us to think about other species, we need to also to decenter our human sensor, sensorial world. And this is really challenging. Of course, we can also do that with more art-based methods and role-playing and trying to really imagine this even uh, drawing and so on. But I think these technologies bring new possibilities. And in this case, this, this was basically something that can be called sensorial augmentation or sensorial hacking. So in that, they, they were, I think, pretty useful because they're enabling new possibilities if we really go for that kind of uh, uses. Um, and just my last comment on this, uh, um, on this sensorial worlds, I, I remember also thinking about uh, learning how uh, pollinators, uh, like for example, bees, they can see UV light. And, and oftentimes this is the relation that they have with the plants is that the, the, the flowers would have uh, the UV light kind of pointing the spot where the pollen is and it's already like a, a, an adaptive relation that they have the plants are basically like a, a, yeah like a luminescent light they're like showing come here and then the bees have this sense develop and it's a relation that uh, it's working so i think this is the kind of things that i would like to see happening with with a lot of these technologies is how to to, to help us engage more with these sensorial realities these layers of invisible ecology that we don't see and we don't care for, but maybe this is just one entry point. 
Um, there's other examples where, where technology was not used, which I also thought is important to say, we don't necessarily need these technologies all the time. It's, it's good when we can have them in this way, but just the other example that I want to mention is something called uh, Organisms Parliament, which is um, an, a project that ran uh, in, a, in many cities in Europe, one being Berlin, and there they were doing a, a role-playing exercise in a neighborhood. So basically a, a bunch of people, maybe 15 or so, each of them represented one species in the neighborhood. And then they had a conversation of the future of the neighborhood, uh, each one bringing the needs of the species that they were representing. And it was, again, a, 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 um, a collective exercise and they were not using this technology. So just to say like, we, if we don't have this available, we can, there are ways in which we can still conduct these exercises. I want to bring two points to this conversation. Like one is about the visualization and how much visualization plays a meaningful role in the Western culture. So we really need to enhance the options of visualization to incorporate uh, multiple perspectives in planning and design as we have been talking about. And the second point is uh, like reacting to the comments from Melissa. Thank you so much, Melissa, for your insights. And that really we need to enhance the, the whole sensibility of our city and in the process of planning yeah, incorporate the sensibility. I really was uh, like associating how much the city like implies a direct, like a explicit violence um, against uh, the minorities. And that is very well exemplified in the case of Bogota, for example, with disabled people or with uh, women or with women in maternity, or with, in families with children, then when you are in that position, you feel the violence and the aggression and the exclusion of the city. Uh, so bringing these multiple perspectives to the process of planning would really help to like uh, smooth the, uh, the vertical visions of the planning and make a more sensible city where enhancing the awareness about precisely that violence that the city is committing against the minorities and alternative visions. Yeah, no, that's really powerful stuff. Thank you both, Mosa and Duban, because I think, I think for me, this transformative lens that challenges um, some of like the modernist archetypes of what a city should look like and what materials is it built out of. And um, this transformative approach that starts from the experiences of those most excluded from accessing the, the, the wonderful uh, places of the city that it could be, you know. Um, that, that's, that's the starting point for really thinking about future cities in a, in a transformative, justice-based way. And so I think that if we take a critical approach as early career people using data and visualization in the service of future cities and ask questions about 
you know, how is this data making visible certain things and, and maybe excluding other things? And how is that lining up with um, the needs of those most, uh, most excluded from the city? Um, or how is it lining up with existing power relations and the way that um, certain corporations uh, have basically taken over our cities uh, to the point where there's a general housing crisis, there's a general food affordability crisis, there's a general access crisis and mobility crisis. So we, we really need to find those starting points for a transformative approach that challenges some of the patterns that are in place currently, whereby continued colonization of space in the interests of profit and the benefits of a privileged few has become so naturalized. And, you know, um, that's on us as people engaging with these, with these visuals. But as the examples that, that all of you have shown, some pilots and really good ideas and new technologies in many cases can go so far in, in challenging those, those kinds of dominant narratives. I think that all, what all three of you were saying and your work, Melissa, is, is truly beautiful. I was really taken aback by your words, continued colonization, Matt, because I think that is so true. And to take another perspective, you know, it is how do we as communities and a greater global community of both human and non-human species heal from trauma that is continuously done onto the active parties. And hearing all of these examples, it shows that it's a very much so multi-scale resolution. You know, there is one with organic parliament where it's very small-scale community-oriented um, and very feasible for and accessible for many people to activate that kind of technology. And then there are bigger scale things like VR and immersive AI that can really help capitalize and activate uh, innovation, you know, CO2 emissions, understanding how those flow throughout the city and how that impacts pollution. I think there's such a diverse future if we can use these visualization tools for social justice. So I really want to thank you guys for this beautiful discussion and um, it really has been inspiring. I wanted to give some time for all of you um, to reflect and comment some takeaways. So um, Matt, if you, can, if you can start us off, that would be amazing. Thanks, Ananth. Um, I think that the big takeaway for me is that um, these questions of whose visions um, inform future cities are never finally answered. The city is always a place of struggle and even um, defining what is and what is not the city uh, and, and who has the right to access these spaces will be a constant place of um, of struggle and, and, and dispute and 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 we want that struggle and dispute to to be lively um, to include um, uh, as many different possible perspectives as as there are um, available and um, so for me the the 
the, the, the takeaway in what I'm hearing um, is that by coming together and um, opening spaces for critical reflection, we are creating possibilities for countering certain kinds of dominant logics. Um, and, and where I want to end my, my reflection is that um, nature-based solutions, green infrastructure, um, uh, any one of the examples that, that we have shared today in sort of a positive context can also be co-opted and, and, and used in ways that actually are part of what I might call like a logic of sacrifice, where we are willing to invest in the nature-based solutions and the green infrastructure in certain places in order to allow all of the patterns that we talked about to continue everywhere else. And, and so that's the kind of thought um, I, I want to leave today with as a, as a takeaway that we need to continuously engage in this critical analysis to situate how these wonderful examples can be part of solutions, transformative solutions, but can also sometimes be co-opted as strategies for maintaining status quo development. I just wanted to maybe emphasize um, that we can take the discussion farther into, into seeing the role of emerging technologies, but we should not lose sight of the baseline of the things that we can already do just with the way that we design the methods of urban planning and urban design. So I would say just the baseline for me is that we find ways to listen to this marginalized voice. And there are many methods of scenario building and participatory planning that could already help us in that direction. And also just, again, look for experiential ways to connect to nature, to urban nature. So we, for sure, like at the baseline, we have our human senses to connect to urban nature and we should be listening more and engaging more with that. Um, also, when we think about the future uh, and bringing some art-based experiences, we can look at uh, the work of indigenous futurism uh, and, and, and works that are bringing the many marginalized worldviews into into the, um, uh, the, the, the works of the future. So basically imagining what the future could look like. So I would say that for me is the baseline. And then, uh, and then we can look at what new possibilities are opened by emerging technologies. So uh, just to say as a summary, I think with pervasive sensing, we can bring a lot of data about environmental indicators and we can make these processes more participatory. So for example, with participatory sensing, it's basically relying on, on, on people to collect the data and to make sense of the data together with researchers. Uh, and then I mentioned a few examples of immersive technologies, so VR or augmented reality. And again, with, with this one, I, I would say that uh, they can enable this uh, kind of inclusive storytelling where we focus on, on bringing again the voices of people that are usually not um, taking into account. Um, but as, as, I, I, as I also said, this, this is opening new exciting ways to take into account the sensorial worlds of other species and learning uh, more about what that means uh, for the way to, to, in which we relate to ecology. So, uh, that's what I wanted to just bring us a closing remark. Let's like let's do what's possible uh, with with all these technologies, and then we can then for sure open up new avenues uh, to explore with these technologies. Okay, after this takeaway that have provided Matt uh, and Melissa, I will only add that we need to include these insights about democratizing visualization tools for climate justice in the 
work that we are developing with the local labs, initially in Colombia. Of course, we invite the audience, and scholars in general and practitioners to, to approach the working group and let us know if there is a possibility to enhance this work in other parts of the world um, with different topics and, and, for example, focusing on these technologies. But we, uh, we are opening also some questions to the audience that you are going to talk about and that. And we expect additionally to have feedback and we are envisioning like different spaces to receive your, the incomes. One will be a joint effort with the program Rural Aires to bring some undergraduate and graduate students eventually in Colombia. Uh, another is a collaboration we are pushing with the Natura Early Career Network to do some uh, workshop about these different uh, topics, including nature-based solutions um, additionally, we are articulating the insights uh, and any contribution in a writing piece that we are, in, we are initially posting to the Open Access Week at the University of Waterloo in the coming month of October. The year's theme is the Open for Climate Justice Week. Uh, so uh, we also plan, which is important, a webinar for November 15th as part of the Natura webinar series uh, and the audience is all welcome to join us there and again add any insight about the questions that we are elevating. I give you the mic uh, back Anand. I would urge all listeners, practitioners or not, to answer the questions we asked today but especially what are your experiences and examples of visualizations which have stuck with you and especially the experiences that relate to equity. Whether you are someone walking around the city or observing certain built issues or a researcher analyzing them retrospectively or even a designer beginning those discussions and building our urban fabric, it is important to activate reflections into actionable methods and outputs for a resilient future. I invite all of you guys to also join us for all of the other events that Duvan did talk to us about. I want to thank everyone at this table today, Melissa, Matt, Duvan. It has been truly amazing. I want to thank my dear friends, Teresa O'Neill and Dani Garcia Moreno for their time talking with me and being a small part of this project. And um, thank you so much to Natura for funding this project and giving us the Future Cities podcast as a platform for communicating this work. We are very grateful for everyone who tuned in and got to listen and think critically about this topic with us and wish you all a wonderful day. Signing off, Anant. The Future Cities podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by Natura-based solutions for urban resilience in the Anthropocene, or Natura. To learn more, please visit www.natura-net.org. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.